Hello to everyone. Hello on the internet. Hello you. Thank you very much for allowing me and us on your device. Yeah. Um, you are awesome. Thank you very much for um, uh, saying hello to us. Yeah, whether you're watching this uh, via video on uh, YouTube uh, or via uh, a audio podcast medium when we eventually get around to uploading these to podcasting platforms. Yeah, podcasting platforms are good because um, you can listen and um, you can put them in your car and you can put them in your ears and you can put them in other places too, but we've just started, so I don't want to tell you about those other places just yet. Although we are going to tell you in this little talk about some things, I don't know, some people might not be ready for. This is the uh, yeah. almost everything you wanted to know about AIDSy but were scared to ask. That's right, um, and there are bits in there that are a little bit sticky. Yeah, and, and although, as I think about it, scared to ask, I always remember in any videos or live streams, um, the people aren't particularly scared to ask. I think you, yeah. I th- I think you radiate them. No, seriously, say anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. It's all good, you know. I will tell you. And um, for those who know the Angry Aussie channel and uh, the many and storied events in AIDSy's life, mm. you'll know about Code Grey. Uh, you will. That was a stage show that went on in the Melbourne Comedy Festival some years back. Mm-hmm. It was basically um, a, a comedy show about ooh, escapades. Escapades. Your, yeah. Escapades and... Um, Escapades in the Australian health system. Yeah, because uh, particularly I've, I've always been fond of the opening when you sort of set the stage for yourself. Adrian Clear of the Clan Clear, born on the shape, shores of Lake Burley Griffin. And then you run through all the things that have happened in your life, having been shot, stabbed, buried alive, drowned, fallen out of an aeroplane. Uh, and none of those are the actual story. You say all these amazing things... Yeah, but we haven't got time for any of that. No, we are just going to talk about one of the times you died. Yeah. And you actually died more than once in this story. Yeah. Um, and the reason... Well, there's a couple reasons we're going to have a bit of an in-depth talk about Code Grey. Uh, one is just because people are always asking, quite mm. honestly. Mm. They want to know a bit more about it. Um, you can see uh, a recording of the live show you just search on youtube aid z code gray you'll find it you'll find it along with a bunch of behind the scenes stuff some interviews some very interesting background stuff uh so yeah you gotta um search a little bit in the actual channel because i did some vlogs because i was um wildly addicted to drugs and um my boss angry and my mom uh basically um made a conspiracy with all my friends and said we've got to dry az out from the drugs and so i got sent to canberra and i um uh basically was really quite annoyed and i did a lot of um vlogs um about being really quite annoyed and i did a tongue-in-cheek um intro music um Thing. And then I got told to stop doing that, and then um, yeah, I uh, I uh, got back on the drugs because uh, I found some people that would give them to me, and then I went back to Melbourne, and um, after a while got healthy. But in between, 
oh, I got really unhealthy and was given uh, two years to live. And uh, when I spoke to my doctor later, he said, no, mate, it was like two weeks. They were just trying to soften the blow when they said two years. And he said, I wouldn't have put my house on you lasting more than two days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh. And that was like, what, five or six years ago? Uh, it was like, yeah, six. Yeah, something yeah, like that. Six years ago, yeah. But, um, yeah, so one of the reasons we're going to spend time having a bit of an in-depth discussion. A bit of an in-depth uh, and there were some depths that were gone into, um, mm. figuratively, literally, um, body exploratory wise. Oh, yes. Uh, Trust me. Yeah. Besides the fact just people want to know, uh, we are also looking at, there is a uh, pitching competition in VidCon Australia this year mm. to try and get some uh, funding from Screen Australia to develop. And we've always wanted to rewrite like the one hour stage show. Yeah. Into webisodes, like say 10, 10 minute episodes, and each each one would be telling a different part of the story because there are many, many, many parts of the story from the uh, early days when you were the strapping young star of the comedy scene. Oh yeah! In the early times, there was no stopping me. I was just the most ambitious. Um, you know, it, look, seeing a young comic on the rise is an awesome thing you know because they're just so um politely aggressive and um nothing can get on your way and 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 you know these guys you can tell the guys who are going to really make it because they walk on stage like you know um corporeal gods um it was awesome it was awesome and then i got fired yeah the first downward uh uh, trend that was not even the main story that mm. was rheumatoid arthritis mm. again uh, you were only about 30 uh i was 26 okay yeah this uh, this is a thing and one of the central themes which we will end up discussing is australia's health system what it does what it can do what it means mm. um because far too often everyone thinks emergency health cares for old people and yes broadly the older you are the more likely you are to need particular health care but young mm. up to that point very healthy people yeah can get in your case more or less literally crippled yeah by uh any number of things in your case it was rheumatoid arthritis with some people it would be an accident like a vehicle accident oh when i was in the plastics ward much later the number of guys who came in um, with motorbike accidents. Mm. You know, the number of guys I met who were just, they had skin off all over because they mm. fell off their motorbike. Mm. You know, it was like, ouch, you've got to get skin grafts from all over the place. Yeah, even my, my less storied uh, medical adventures. When we were at uni, one holiday break, I had to have surgery on my ears. I had it in the holidays. So it'd be less disruptive. And it was the Christmas holidays. And this was in a public ward. So there was uh, three other guys. There were four beds in the public ward. And um, they were all motorcycle crashes. And they were yeah. like, they weren't just road rash. They were pins through their legs. Yeah. And... Oh, yeah. These guys are a fucking mess. Um, and they say to you, wear your leathers. And, you know, in the summertime, guys don't. They just put on their helmet 
and um, you know, fuck me, they come and guts up yeah. and uh, scrape on the road. And that's the big thing. The weird part is they'll break a couple bones, which is bad, but they'll scrape all over the road. And if you lose enough skin, you will die. Yeah. A minor spill without protection can rip off a bunch of skin. We've both shared hospital wards yeah. uh, with guys who've been on that. Uh, but, yeah, you, you're, again, a living example. You you weren't even doing anything dangerous. It was it was literally just rheumatoid arthritis popped up and went, hey, how are you doing? No, you're not. And <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And um, how are you doing? Good. No. I, I, I thought about it. You're saying, like, there, there were two reasons... The rheumatoid arthritis basically smashed your rising stand-up career. One is you were physically not that able to keep going. Yeah. But two is the times when you felt you were able, mm-hmm. people didn't want to see this sick guy on stage. No, because you don't want to connect with someone who's sick. Um, and it's it's a human thing, right? Mm. You know, we're all in the cave and we're sitting around the fire and someone's sick, what you want is that guy to crawl over to the edge of the cave and go to sleep and be tended by people in the in the cave, but he's got to go away from the circle because not everyone wants to get what he's got. Yeah. And, um, you know, you don't want to relate to that guy. Um, and so... It works on stage too, you know. Yeah. You, people people want to get and ride along with the story um, with you, but if you're sick, then... Is there this weird contradiction? Jokes about death, hilarious. Hilarious. Jokes about wanting to die, hilarious. hilarious. Looking like you might actually die on the stage. Fuck off. Mm, not good. Not good. Not good. Go away from me. I don't want to see it. Um, I don't want to feel it. Got to the point where my skin was so grey and horrible that I dyed my hair blue, like electric blue, so that it would make people think that it was just a a, a trick of the light. And it worked really well. Um, except, you know, eventually, uh, you know, I was too sick to move. Yeah. And, um, and then eventually um, somebody who very powerful in comedy fired me. Um, and yeah, and, and, and we'll go into that. We'll go into that. I've seen photos from that stage. Gray is flattering. You were actually a kind of copper green color Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a, like, so obviously sick. Um, and you were clearly just propping yourself up by going like, here I am. I'm in a family photo. Everything's fine. It's all good. It's all good. No, I ran. And you're like, Ooh, dude, maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not. At my 30th birthday, right, where lots of very famous people turned up because, you know, it was me. And um, uh, my folks came and said, well, we've got to congratulate you. And I said, oh, thank you. Thanks, very kind. And I said, well, yeah, because we didn't think you were going to last till 25. <laughs> and I went, it's a bit harsh. I wasn't even sick then. They said... No, you weren't, but you were involved in many things that you shouldn't have been involved in. Yes. That's fair. Yes. That's that's fair. Yeah, look, it may or may not have involved working with criminal syndicates. Yeah. May or may not have involved accidentally being in a porno. 
Well, that was that was an accident. Yeah, that was an accident. Being accidentally being in a porno. You really thought you were there to deliver pizza. Effectively, effectively, um, and I was on drugs at the time. And before, but see, and but see I can't. You know, that's the problem. You know, because every time I, I, you know, done something wrong, I always say I was on drugs at the time. But see, that was twenty years. Yeah, and and you know. It's everything. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not really it's not really fair of me to say I was on drugs at the time because I just was. Yeah, it's not so much an excuse as an explanation. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's not saying therefore everything was okay. Yeah. No. It was it's a just just so you know sort of thing. Yeah, you know. And you know, people come up to me even now and say, Oh, you know, um, blah 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 and I go, uh, and um yeah, I'm Aidsy, who are you? And they say, We've met three times. <laughs> And in fact, we, well, we, we initially met, we did the same uni course. Yes. Uh, and then went our separate ways. But then we re-met when you were essentially coming back from the rheumatoid arthritis thing. That's right. You'd reinvented yourself. You were now a director and mentor to young comics. Yes, I was a director and... Um... Uh, that year I had three shows going and I found I could cope with five shows, but no more. Um, the year that I did seven shows was a bit of a friggin' disaster, uh, because there wasn't enough time and I was double booking people and they were freaking out and getting really angry and, um, it was a good year for the shows. They all went off. But, um, yeah, no, I lost a lot of clients that year. Um, so, yeah, I was directing and that was a new new world. Yeah, and successfully mm. and things were going swimmingly. Mm. You were going to be set up as a business. Mm-hmm. You were uh, uh, all set to go with a new phase of world conquering. Now, Australia is famously full of all these creatures that want to kill you. We have the most poisonous, most venomous snakes. We have the crocodiles. We have two we... kinds of spider that'll kill you. Yeah, scary Outright. spiders. Uh, and uh, which of Australia's terrifying beasts struck you down? An ant. Not... A sugar ant. Yeah, not a metaphor, not underplaying anything. An ant. Uh... An ant nearly killed me. An ant that was three millimetres long, or four. I'll give it four millimetres long. Eighth of an inch, we're talking. You're right. This thing bit me um, upon my scrotum. I'm Mm. just going to say it. Upon my scrotum. The thing with ants, right, and now I'm anti-ant. Anti-ant. Right. The thing with ants is they don't friggin' clean their mandibles between meals. Right? And they get mandible gingivitis and Mm. and numbers of, you know, they're dirty. Mm. And so when they bite things, you know, you get, you get that. You get the disease. Yeah. And you, and of course you scratched because you were bitten, break the skin, dirty mandible fragments. And it's all over. Now, again... Initial, I think virtually any time I've told people mm-hmm. this, they think there's something else. They think this you're exaggerating something. But within 12, eight 12. hours, eight to twelve hours, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
What exactly were we looking at? We were looking at a scrotum that was the size of a um, grapefruit. Yeah, not boasting, by the way. He's not saying his scrotum is normally the size of a grapefruit. This is a bad thing, not a good thing. It was, it was. Man, and I was married at the time, and I said to my dear wife, I said, um, check this out. Um, if this um, remains this size on Monday, I will go to the doctor on Tuesday. And she said, we're going to the friggin' hospital now. And that turned out to be a wise thing, mm. uh, because in 24 hours I was in surgery. Um, and it was only 24 hours because they were flying doctors in yeah. from around Australia, which was a bit, um, shit. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, you, they're basically saying if treatment had started even a couple of hours later, yeah. that would have been too late. Yeah, I would have been gone. And effectively, um, yeah, effectively they um, they really went out, all out to yeah. get this done. And um, bloody, uh, oh, oh, it was full on. I was, I was basically sat in a room and there were 45 doctors in the room. And I thought to myself, I might be in a bit of shit here. Um, because what you don't want is for your case to be interesting. Yes. Um, Everyone from interns to professors all wanted to cop a look. Uh, And you lose your um, shyness in about five minutes because everybody was lifting up the sheet and going, oh, hmm, yes, hmm. And I'm going, stop looking at my junk. And then I was going, oh, yeah, have a look at my junk. Everyone's having a look. Cleaners were coming around going, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, that's bad. And I'm going, are you qualified? Yeah, I'm getting germs off the floor. Yeah, I'll just chuck some bleach on there. You'll be fine. You'll be great. You'll be good. good. Maybe I should have chucked some bleach. That might have helped. Because what it it was is a form of necrotizing fasciitis or... Which is an awesome name. Flesh, like a heavy metal band's name, that one. Yeah, unless you get it. Yeah, and then it's not okay. a for, form of flesh eating. It's bacteria. Yeah, yeah. Flesh or it's actually bacteria. a bacteria that has a virus riding along with it. Yeah. And your specific one was fornia's gangrene because Fornia's it attacks gangrene. the scrotum. Mm. And every time we say this, we say you look that up at your own peril um, because the photos are there on the image search. Yeah, don't. don't. Fornia's gangrene is a flesh eating. Uh, infection uh, on uh, 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 scrotums. Uh, it's not good. And and it's also a flesh-eating disease on vaginas. Yeah, you know. It's... And it's... Oh, man. But it doesn't... It's not, you know, it's not um, worse um, on a vagina. It's not great. Um, but it's, you know, the same kind of damage. Uh, mm. And it's pretty bad. It's it's pretty bad, um, and um, you learn the actual um, meaning of the word debridement. Oh yes, and I'm, I, I reckon a whole bunch of people who've actually been through it just had a cold shiver down the spine. That's the scraping off of skin. Um, actually, debridement means the cutting off 
of the entire area. Now, I thought that debridement meant, you know, shaving out the, the you know, the bad bits. No, debridement meant we're going to cut off his scrotum entirely. And they did. And we should now, this is immediately going to raise a question. This is, again, some people don't know anatomy that well. Um, testicles sit inside the scrotum, but they are not the scrotum. That's right. So scrotum went bye-byes, but... The testicles were still there. They went to a new special home in your thighs. In my legs. They put them in my legs to save them. <laughs> this is... This is medicine. This is stuff that, I don't know, if you have any sort of normal life, you don't think about. But that's a medical technique to protect... Because eventually, when they killed all the infection, they were going to form you a, a nice new scrotum out of a bit of skin they cut off somewhere else. Yes, they did. They, they cut off a flap of skin from my leg, twisted it like a tennis ball, and sewed it back onto the hole they made for the scrotum and um, they pulled the... I don't know how far I should go with this. Cause yeah. I mean, at this far. point, like, you know, this this is pretty intense medical stuff. But look, and, and you know, all good as new um, and all the bits saved, which, again... Which was just phenomenal. Now, I'm infertile, right? Um, but everything else works. Mm. Now, that was a minor miracle. Mm. Now, okay, there's a couple of major miracles with me being alive afterwards. What had happened during the operation, which was supposed to last six hours, lasted 16 hours, right? Um, and, okay, so when they briefed me on the operation, they said, it's going to take six hours, you're going to wake up in intensive care, then you're going to go up to the ward, and everything's going to be tickety-boo. <laughs> and what happened was it was like, okay, well, they had to find a vein first, and my skin was yellow, and it took them half an hour to find a vein, and these guys were embarrassed because they were anaesthetists, and um, all they do is find veins. And they said, this is our job. Mm. We can't find a vein. We're really embarrassed. Eventually they did. And they pumped me full of a shitload of drugs. And then they put me to sleep. And then I woke up in intensive care. Um, you know, everything's fine. And then they went up to the ward. And everything was fine. It was clearly six hours later. Mm. What was weird was my mother was there. And I thought, Jesus, she got here fast. Because she lived more than six hours away. Right? And um, I'm just going, yeah, okay. Oh, good on mum. And uh, then I thought, oh, I'll go, I'll, cool, I'm in hospital, I'll see all my mates. And I didn't for three weeks. And I was going, why, why can't I see you? Everybody's ignored me. Thanks, bastards. And uh, what it was, was I didn't wake up in six hours. The operation took 16 hours. Um, and basically, I was in intensive care for a week and a half in an induced coma. Um, what had happened was my blood had gone septic. Um which means your blood is poisoning you and your organs start to liquefy. 
It's bad. And I love that you put that on the end. My blood was poison. My organs were liquefying. That was bad. It's bad, right? That's not good. Less than optimal. Yeah, less, yeah, yeah. A non-trivial injury. Yeah. Um, and what they did was they put eighty liters of blood through me. Now that's eight zero liters of blood through my system. And every time it went bad, they put another bag through. And then strain it because they had me on dialysis, right, to clean up the blood. But there's only so much dialysis can do with uh, polluted blood, you know. So they basically put another bag in, drain out the crap, put another bag in, drain out the crap. 80 litres. Now, I want you to start getting an idea of how the costs here. Each litre of blood costs a thousand bucks. Because uh, in Australia, uh, you don't get paid for donating blood. It's just voluntary. And so people donate blood voluntarily. And like a shitload of people do it, which is great, <laughs> by the way. Thank you. <laughs> um, and they, and, and but the reason it costs so much is the administration and the trace back. Every bit of blood is tested, um, purified, uh, mixed, and they trace back the blood to whoever donated to the system, right? And the blood goes everywhere, all over the country. They don't freeze it. So it goes bad in three weeks. It's, it's thrown away. So they they need a constant supply of blood. They store this stuff and then they move it around the country to whoever needs it and um, they basically guarantee the purity and the and the and the um, the wholesomeness of this blood that they put in people and also it's a it's a massive test uh, thing. So um if you, for example, are a bit worried about what's um, in your blood, if you think you might have picked up a disease, go and donate blood because um, they find anything in the blood and they will ring you up. And so you have to go see a doctor um, and um, and you tell us which doctor you're going to see and we'll write them a letter. And then the doctor says, eh, you've got um, an STD or an STI. You have the cooties. You have the cooties and um, you have to get um, you know, fixed. But, you know, this, this, this tracking of this blood and this storing of this blood and this moving of this blood. So whoever gets it, gets it within three weeks anywhere in the country. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, massive enterprise. Mm. And so every litre costs a thousand bucks. And uh, you're getting blood within a hospital environment and it's free. Mm. The antibiotics they were putting into me before and during this um, costs three thousand bucks a bag. And they put um, 50 of those into my body. Um, that's an insane amount of cash, except that that was nothing. Yes. Um, it was bugger all. The actual bill 
Um, I'm just going to get this out now. The actual bill at the end of my reconstruction. So it was the emergency phase, then they put me at home to recover, then they um, they gave me a new scrote and uh, put my testes back in the new scrote. Um, the recovery um, and the emergency um, and the rehab after cost $10 million. Well, that's thinking, why do we have this healthcare system for that sort of thing? And look, I'm just going to do one thing because I can already imagine comments being written for the video portion of this that we're framed really awkwardly. There's all this empty space over here. So I just want you to shuffle across. I'm shuffling. I'm sh I was getting give you know. Yeah, you do, do that. Yeah, yeah. but you can do that. But we just have to be in the middle of the frame. I, I, it's my psychic powers have seen comments yet to be written. Yeah, and someone will have already written that and have kept watching, and now they'll be going. He knew. He knew. He knew. He knew. Um. Uh, yeah, he has got psychic powers because he knows when I do booze in the hall. Yeah. Um, and you know, I get grabbed by the scruff and mm. like get my nose in, and sometimes you know, I get spanked, but that costs extra, yes, that's only on special occasions. Yeah. But this is a good point to bring back to where we're because that's that's the basic story in mm. a nutshell extreme medical misadventure, and it was like 10 million dollars worth of medical treatment when you take into account just. The consumables, the professional time of the dozens and dozens of people who spent hundreds of hours. There was, yeah. And there the machines, the, all the high-end machines that you went into and went into you. And, and, and you know, those machines, right, they, they take major pieces of equipment in those machines and when they're finished with you, they throw them away. Especially, especially if you had some super gross flesh-eating infection. They they don't want that stuff touching anyone else. It's just a thing. It's just a, it's thing. Just a thing. And by the way, this, I'm going to throw this in. This type of infection has roughly 98% fatality rate. That was one of the things that you knew you were in trouble when it was one of the interns who accidentally slipped. Oh, yeah. This bloody intern was trying to impress these other two interns, you know, trying to put parts of him in parts of them. And he said, oh, we're so lucky to see this in a live patient. Usually we've got to wait for the post-mortem slides. And I was just going, oh, shit. <laughs> and, um... You know, at some point along the line, they said, yeah, you got a 95% chance of checking out. Yeah. I should have known something was wrong because in the middle of the night, the nurses were happy to roll me downstairs and have a cigarette. Now, that never happens. They don't let you out. If you, get, if you insist on going out, they'll let you go. But... Um, you won't get back in. The, the security won't let you back in. Um, and the idea is you wait around emergency till someone opens the door and you can cruise in. Um, and then, when you're in emergency, there's another door to get through and you've just got to wait till someone comes through the door. And you can be waiting for up to half an hour. 
But that didn't happen to me. The nurses were taking me downstairs every hour or so to have a cigarette. And I was going, yeah, this is cool. That's very nice of them. It was very nice of them, but they were basically going, yeah, it doesn't matter. This, this guy's last cigarette. Yeah, you know? they were letting you have a last cigarette. Yeah, you know, uh, this guy's going to be dead tomorrow, so it's mm. all right. Don't worry about it. He's cool. So, you know, at least make him comfortable. Yeah. So yeah. I should also realise something was wrong because they were giving me morphine every two hours. And that's the other thing. You and your asking people, please give me drugs. Of the various dozen or so times um, I visited you in hospital because you've been in and out that many times, uh, you always go like, oh, this is a bad one. I asked for morphine and they gave it to me. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's the thing, right? You know, when you're in hospital, you never ask for drugs. They ask you, are you in pain? And you give them the number because it's out of 10. And they go, oh, okay, we can sort that out. And they do. Um, but if you think you're in trouble, right, you go, oh, yeah, can I have some morphine, please? And they go, no, no, we're just going to give you these painkillers. And you go, oh, thank fuck for that. But if they go, yeah, sure. You're going, yeah. oh, no, oh, that's bad. Yeah. Oh, I am in trouble here. And, yeah, I was. Yeah, mm. yeah, because they, they deal with um, drug chasers all the time. Mm. And as soon as someone asks for it, their <sighs> sort of defences go up. An ex of mine who was a nurse, she's saying in her hospital, they had people who would go so far as to break bones. Yep. Just for to get um, hospital grade painkillers. Yep. Uh, so they got to deal with some shit. So that's... I I know of a guy who chopped his fingers off. Not only two, but he chopped his fingers off and came into hospital with them. Okay, so if you get a, a limb or a finger and gets chopped off, you get a plastic bag, stick them in, and then you stick the plastic bag. On ice. Yeah, you don't stick the fingers on, on ice, ice. Because that'll ruin them. Yeah, you stick in a plastic bag, you put that in ice. Um, so you can usually have two plastic bags uh, with one of them in ice. And then you race off to the hospital and the microsurgeons can put your limbs back together again. Mm. But, um, yeah, these, this guy um, had chopped his fingers off for, for drugs. And... Um, uh, he said to me the third time I did it, they were getting a bit annoyed because it was the same two fingers every oh, God. time. And, you know, not smart. No. And um, and they were going, you're just doing this to get to the drugs, buddy. Mm. Don't cut your fingers off anymore. Um, or, you know, because they put him on a dome program after that. And, you know, he was okay. Um, but still, you know. These guys go to extremes. I, for example, um, you know, uh, die every yeah. six months. Um, just to keep them on their toes. Just to get the drugs. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, with the dying thing, as long as uh, it's a draw, you're winning. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you've got to get up each time you go down. Mm. So you can die six times so long mm. as you get back up six times. That's right. 
It's got to be an even number. Yeah. As uh, Chumper Wamba said, get knocked down, but get up again. Get up again. Mm. You know? Or, uh. or um, it's not Doraemon. It's a, um, a Japanese um, wooden toy that you, you push it down and it gets back up again. And, um, yeah, I wish I could remember its name. Oh, a lot, yeah, there's a lot of those things, the clown things that have a weight in the bottom and you punch their nose and up they come they back up. Again. yeah. Yeah, in for the bone. See, okay, so this morning, because we're going to uh, enter this pitching competition for the story of Kogoro. It's a fictionalised version because the true story is too weird. Yeah. So we, we've just been telling you the bits of the true story. Yeah. So we're going to make it a bit lighter than yeah. reality because reality is too fucking grim. There's one bit of the true story that I found that I can't tell. Because the first time I told it, I told it to a couple of people, and then I told it to a nice lady, and she fainted. <laughs> and I told it to one of my um, comedy uh, colleagues, and he was starting to lose consciousness. Yeah. So I had to stop saying it, and it's uh, it was an event that happened um, while I was on drugs, um, and shit, I was on ketamine. I was on a shitload of ketamine and I fell down the K-hole and I did bad things. Well, sorry, was that recreational or was that the hospital ketamine? That was the hospital. Yeah, I was about the to say. The hospital gave it to me and um, they thought I'd sleep through it. No. That was our favourite story about the flappy dogs came out of the ketamine too, didn't it? Was that the ketamine or was that just generally the drugs they had you on? That was general... I hadn't, I'd had a bit of ketamine, but that was general, and um, I'd just come out of um, surgery, and um, I said, look at the flappy dogs, because I couldn't remember the word for penguin. Which, okay, I'm just going to throw in there, at this point you are wondering how does penguin make it any better. Um, he saw something out the window, it was uh, an event uh, chimney on a roof and a bit of tar paper on the roof had come loose and was flapping around this chimney and to his drug addled brain it looked like there was a penguin on the roof now i don't think anyone would have believed you if you said you saw a penguin on the roof right which but they might have looked annoying which they was might, annoying as hell if you'd remembered the word penguin they might have actually looked and said there are no penguins out there but you couldn't remember what a penguin was called yeah i couldn't remember the word for penguin so I just went, oh, you know, flappy dogs. <laughs> so this guy who's been in an induced coma is on some of the most powerful drugs known to humanity, mm. sits up and points out a window behind everyone like it's pantomime, going, there's a flappy dog out there. Look at all the flappy dogs. Look at all the flappy dogs. <laughs> and they're saying, behind you, behind there, you. There are no flappy dogs over there. And I was going, if you look... You'll see the flappy dogs. And they were going, there are no flappy dogs over there. And I was furious because they wouldn't even look. If they'd have looked, they would have seen the flappy dogs and they were right there. And they were just like the whole flock of flappy dogs. And, you know, it was very frustrating because it was like they knew something I didn't. That there is no such thing as flappy dogs. And I was stoned out of my mind. Hospital-grade drugs, people. That's and a lot of them, yeah. and they mixed them. 
Yes. You shouldn't mix your drugs. No. Except when doctors do it. Yes. And they really, really did. So if we're going to pitch this um, as a web series, mm. the, 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 I'm looking at the things that says, you know, first we've got to give them the general format, how many episodes, length of episode. We know you did a one-hour stage show. Um, we've always said, like, 10, 10-minute 10 episodes. 10 episodes, about 10 minutes each. You know, some would probably be slightly longer, so, but they'd each be a little self-contained nugget of the AIDSy story. Yeah. Um, so that part's easy. I know. So the next thing we've got to tell them is genre characters, brief plot summary. Now we told you a long plot summary. Yes. Um, we have to do a brief plot summary. So okay. But I love the idea of genre. Okay. Well, shorthand is comedy. Yeah. Um, or, or what's the term people like to say for the, uh, edgy TV shows these days? Dramedies. Because oh. there's, there's drama, you know, Breaking Bad, um, there's more drugs in your story than in Breaking Bad, really. I know, right? Um, I know. There's more drugs in my story than in Breaking Bad. And I was doing chemistry as well. Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't have. No, but you know. It wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. There's, there's the high school chemistry teacher and there's the enthusiastic amateur. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it's a genre is a dramedy, I mm. guess. Um, but this is what I love. Theme and tone. What the about comedy thriller? Comedy thrill. Oh, it is a bit of a thrill ride. Yeah. It is a bit of a thrill ride. Will he die or won't he? Well, yes, he will, but will it be okay? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but it's a bit like, you know, um, uh, one of my um, uh, comedian friends uh, was watching Titanic, and at the end, uh, this girl was crying, and her boyfriend said, Oh, don't worry, sweetheart, it's just a movie. <laughs> awesome. Um, um, what's his name? Richie Cunningham. What's his real name? Richie Cunningham's his real name. He sometimes goes under a fake name, Ron Howard. Ron Howard, you yeah. know, fake name. Yeah. Um, did Apollo thirteen, yeah. and um, for a test audience, and one of the cards came back and was furious. Um, it said the ending's crap. Um, that would never happen in the real world. You know, the movie was okay and, until you buggered up the ending. Yeah. Um, and this, Them all surviving was implausible. Of course it was! That's the story! You know, it was, it was just a ridiculous Hollywood ending. Yeah. And now it just went, okay. But this thing, because, okay, we mentioned before we did the same uni course. It was a theatre course. Yeah. Um, and I majored in, in writing, script writing and creative writing. And a text we used. It was. It's not an official textbook, but it was a text for us. Uh, the writer William Goldman yeah. had a book called Adventures in the Screen Trade. It's friggin' brilliant. Yes. If you want how to be a scriptwriter, he wrote um, my favourite, The Princess Bride, mm. uh, Marathon Man, and a bunch of other things. He wow. very accomplished uh, screenwriter. Very good. Um, at, very good at his job. And what he said was. The truth is no defense against something being implausible. Yeah. And he said, for instance, I'm going to do a caper movie where these guys need to get to the richest woman in the world who's behind multiple layers of security in a secure castle. And it's like, okay, if you want the audience to believe it, then the guy who's going to get in there assembles a super team of someone who does physical security, someone There's who does six cyber. months of planning. Yeah. And they're tunneling and they're doing all this shit. What you don't do is have the guy walk down the street going, 
I think I'll go into the castle now and just physically climb the wall. You won't have him with no planning luckily thread his way between all the guards and there are guards patrolling constantly. Yep. When he walks past... And he doesn't know he's threading his way. No, no, this is pure luck, right? He's just walking through halls and and he just misses them. When he walks past security cameras, you can't decide in your movie to at that exact point have the guy who's watching the security monitors go out to take a piss. That's audiences won't go for that. And when he gets finally to the door behind which is his target that has an armed guard outside it at all times, you all do times. at all times you cannot have just before he rounds the corner, the guard goes to walk his dog. Okay? You and and then the guy just walks into the room where the woman is. You can't have that, no one will believe it. That happened. That's a guy who got into Queen Elizabeth's bedroom. Yep. And that is how he did it. He was walking past Buckingham Palace one day and said, I wonder if I can go in there. Climbed a wall, no one saw him. Guards patrolling everywhere with no planning. He just miraculously went between their patrols. When he went past security cameras, no one was looking at the monitor. And that last thing literally happened. Just before he rounded the corner to the Queen's bedroom... The guy walked the corgis out. To the front, the Queen said, you know, take him outside. And he did, just before this guy rounded the corner. And and then he walked straight into her bedroom and sat on her bed and had a conversation with her. That is a real thing that happened. That really, really happened. And he did all this because he was was trying to protest uh, men's rights after divorce. Hmm. That was his thing. And bloody, he walked in and talked to the Queen. Yeah. And, and she hit the button. He, he, she said, would you like some breakfast? And he said, oh, yeah, be good. So she hit the button to get breakfast. Um, happened to be the button that was a panic button. Yeah, the, the, the big red button. <laughs> and, um, yeah, the first person who walked in was her lady-in-waiting. Mm. who just said, I wonder why she's pushed the button. And apparently her famous line was, bloody hell, ma'am, what's, what's he doing in here? Yeah. <laughs> And then it's like, oh, this is just Mr. Jenkins. And um, could you take him down to getting him some breakfast? Yes. <laughs> and there's the thing. This queen literally, for, I'm, I'm a Republican, right? But she literally took an active role in World War Two, right? Yeah. She can strip a Jeep engine and rebuild it. Probably can, not now, but she, she could. She can also strip a Land Rover. That's it. It was a Land Rover. That was her preferred vehicle. But she can also strip a Jeep. Yeah. And she learned all these things and can do them. And she just stayed calm while this guy, who could have seriously hurt her, was just saying, but you can't use the button. And this is why I say, we're toning down some of your story. Because And making it a bit lighter. It's just implausible. Yeah. So, theme and tone. I mean, we've got a few themes, really. Yeah. One is, because, let's bring it back to, we mentioned basically $10 million dollars was spent on keeping you alive. At the end of that, and I I had a conversation because I was starting to feel a bit guilty, and I said, guys, you've spent $10 million on effectively keeping an uh, out-of-work comedian alive. Is that taxpayer value? And uh, these two different doctors said, well, yeah. And they explained from two different angles why it was a good thing to do 
And uh, it's definitely going in the show. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it's too, the one line you used in the show that I always love is because Australia is built by the sons of Bogans. Yeah. Um, sons and daughters. Uh, and it's, it's basically a given person may seem like a scumbag. Uh, or, or a, a degenerate, loser, a loser, a, loser. Uh, you know, uh, a drug-addled drug fiend yeah. uh, of no value to anyone. I'm not with, talking with with you know um, uh, with questionable sexuality. Yeah, I'm not talking about anyone in particular when I say that. But yeah, yeah. the that person may influence others, their offspring, their family, their friends, the the ripples that go out. That person. Someone might look at them and go, well, you should never have helped them. But you but, can never tell what comes after that person. You know, and they, and they say, you know, that guy doesn't do anything, but his grandson or granddaughter cures cancer. Mm. The granddaughter becomes the astronaut that works out how to stop global warming. Yeah. You know, the, the the sons and daughters of Bogans, the grandchildren of Bogans, are the ones that will save our lives. So mm. you don't know which Bogan is going to produce the progeny that will do the amazing things for us. Mm. You know, they might become the political leader that reforms the country to the point where it becomes brilliant. And so you don't know which one... So you've got to save them all. And this is why, like, particularly, I, my mind always goes to Americans who think a socialised healthcare system is wrong, bad, evil, communism. Yeah. Why help people who, maybe you look at them and go, they're a degenerate, they're, they're awful. awful. Why save them? They're, they're scum. They're poor because they're bad. Yeah. And look, in honestly... In a lot of cases, you might be right. They might be awful people. <laughs> they may well be. But the thing is, you never know what comes next. Mm -hmm. And that's why you save everyone, everyone you can, because you never know where that ends up. Yeah, you don't. And the other doctor said, well, there's another, there's another reason um, to do that. He said, you know, actually... The ten million dollars we spent um, actually got us twenty-five to thirty million dollars um, back. And what, what? And this doctor said, "Well, what happened in the sixteen hours of your operation was there was um, uh, twelve specialists, right, who were expecting them to be there for six hours, but as the hours dragged on." The specialists had to be rotated out to get rest because you, if you get too tired during a really complicated operation, you start making mistakes, right? There were only two doctors who stayed there for the entire uh, 16 hours and uh, they had a little bit of medical help. I'm not going to say anymore. Yeah, they had a they're professionals. Of, they're professionals and they know how much medical help mm. to inject. Mm. And um, basically they rotated these specialists in and out. And there was a lot of specialists there all the time. But what they also did was they got 50 students mm. in there and out of there. And when I was in intensive care, there was always six doctors looking at me all the time. 
and they were mostly students, mm. right? And these students basically were told that this guy had a less than 2% chance of living through the first night. You will do everything you can to keep him alive. Within the week, my heart stopped for the second time. It stopped on the operating table and they fixed me up. And then it stopped on the um, in the um, in the intensive care, and uh, I auto started, and uh, effectively I got better and better and better and better. And these students who were rotating in and out, and some of these guys had a lot of these guys had twenty four hour shifts. Mm looking at me and they were getting more and more tired but they had to keep it together and that was also part of their training is sometimes mate you'll go for a really long time mm. um some of the older students they were making go for 48 hours mm. um and they worked really hard and this guy as doctor said these students now have had the experience of seeing someone with a less than 2% chance to live, live, mm. to thrive, yes, to come back, yes. and to go back to their normal life. And they will take that experience with them for the rest of their lives. They will basically, as doctors, look at someone with a 95% chance of dying and go, yeah, no, I've done this. Mm. I've done this before, and they will look you in the eye and go, yeah, I've actually had worse, mm. right? They will see people with an 80% chance of dying and go, yeah, no, that's a good margin. Yeah, this is too easy. This is, you know, and like 50% chance of living. No, no, we can we can sort that. We got this. Yeah. So and, if, you, if, if you were feeling at all selfish about, oh, my God, they wasted all this money on this little degenerate here, mm. um, Think about it from your own selfish perspective. That's that right. was training for dozens of medicos, and it was literally one of a kind training. They will probably never get this experience again. So, just purely in the terms of education and training, it's virtually priceless. But from your selfish perspective, when your ass is on the slab and you're in trouble. And one of these doctors, who has had now 15 years' experience, mm. comes and sees you because of this socialised healthcare. Basically, when you're in trouble, they will save your ass. Or because they know they can. They, they, they know, no matter how bad the odds sound, they can be beaten. Mm. And clearly, the reason... When we say 98% fatality rate is because 98 out of 100 people in AIDS situation will die. Yep. But the fact that these doctors can go, I've seen the one that comes through. Yep. So I can go in with that in my mind. That works so much in your favor. Yep. It's astounding. So this is where we're going themes and tone. That's a central one of... Uh, What's well, culture? The individual versus the, the group. Yeah. Um, how helping an individual helps the group. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, basically, why our dirty communist uh, ideas about medicine are good. Yeah. Uh, even from a purely capitalist point of view, they're good. Well, you, what's weird about this 
socialised healthcare is that when it was introduced, it was a it was a it was a big risk, right? But they they sold it to the government by saying, if you put the money in to make this work, you will get three times back what you put in after ten years, right? Then. What happened in three years was they got ten times back what they put in in three years. Now, (coughs) this continued on. And basically when they looked at the numbers after five years, what had happened was the GDP had gone up by 10%. And they couldn't work out why. And it got steady, you know at this level and they they looked at it and they worked out what had happened was because the whole workforce was way healthier they weren't coming away from work mm. and the people there who had the experience of working weren't being replaced and having to be retrained as new people because the experience was already there and they could naturally um, attrition them out as they retired and get the new people in with, um, like, you know, people training them with years and years and years of experience. And the GDP is artificially high because of this health system. And when the right wing goes, oh, you know, we're going to cut this, the super right wing of the... um, the uh, business the council. The business council taps in the middle on the shoulder and go, don't touch it or we'll cut your balls off. Because there's so much money um, gained yeah. by keeping this that they go, no, no, you're not gonna, you're not yeah. gonna, you're not gonna stop this. Yeah, with, without the money spent on health, uh, the economy takes a couple billion dollars hit from lost productivity. Oh, basically. more. Um, yeah, per year. Yeah. yeah, it's it's something like in the first six months, it's $8 billion. Mm. And then over time, um, it goes up to about $80 billion. It, it, it gets worse because it's the syndrome, and people in America will know this, when you can't afford to go and see a doctor because you've got a bad back, a year later you're in hospital basically paralysed. It's when you can't afford to go and get medical treatment when you are first unwell or feeling symptoms. Uh, you don't get any treatment till it's critical. And at that point, it's way more expensive. You're off work for way longer. It's a much more negative impact on the economy. And just quality of human life is worse. And I know that's a weird, stupid, hippie thing to say from some people's perspective, but I think it makes a, a country stronger if the general quality of human life is a bit higher. Right, because the motivation for people to not opt out and go, I'm going to become a meth head, right? People opt in to the program of working, yeah. of raising a family, of buying property. They opt into um, the um, things that are work driven. Um, because they've got a net to catch them and they've got a better quality of life because they know they're going to be okay. Mm. They're going to be okay. 
you know, at the end of the day, if things go to shit, um, they're going to be caught. Yeah. Um, they're not going to hit the ground. Uh, the net's going to catch them, and uh, their family's not going to um, basically have to sell the house um, because they're going to get fixed up and they're going to get put back into the work. Mm. If they're feeling a little bit sick, they go to the doctor um, and they pay a very small fee to go to the doctor. And if it's uh, starting these days, they're starting to work on chronic illness because what they want to do is nip chronic illness in the bud by giving you strategies to get around it so you can go to work. Mm. Remember, it's not because they're nice guys. It's to get you back to work. It's to get you back to work. Yeah. They want the money. Yeah. They want your tax. You know, they want you know, they want you yeah. to generate cash. Yeah. You know, it's not you know, it's not because they're nice, it's because they're looking for your dog. Yes, yeah, so what while it has some of the <coughs> Guess who's so got a cold? He survived all this time. It's, uh, all, it's all good. Um, it's all good. They fixed me up great. It's great. So while <coughs> while a socialised health system, you know, has some of the trappings of a charity, basically, mm. Mm. it's not charitable. It's to keep the economy going. Yeah, that's right. There's no charity involved. Yeah. It's all about cash. It's based on return. So, I mean, in terms... So when we get back to talking about themes and tone, I mean, tone of it... Definitely dark comedy, a lot of it. The fact yeah. that it deals with death. But it always brings you back to the light. So a phrasing that you've used often like, this type of story that will lead an audience along and convince them to go right to the edge of the cliff. Don't be scared because I'm holding your hand. Yeah. Um, and even if we go off the cliff, we'll sprout rings and fly. Yeah. Everything's going to be fine. I do remember one night because... The show was really well structured, and the first time you died, you're on stage. You wore a hospital gown in the show, and you're talking about dead, and your blood's toxic, your organs are liquefying, everything's going well, badly, I should say, everything's going badly, and then you sort of you, a lot of it's been really boisterous up to the point, but it's, this your voice is going down, 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 and then you go, and then I died, and the stage goes black. Well, then of course. The lights come up again because you know. But one night I was because I was videoing the show. One night, because and I died, and the stage went. And this, there was, this voice went, "Oh no!" <laughs> and we talked. There was a couple there seeing it, and this one uh, uh, girl who was there um, really it hit her so hard that he died. And the boy's going, "He got better." Yeah. <laughs> What do you mean he died? He's on the stage. Yeah, he's on stage. It's just like, oh yeah. Like she was so carried along by the story. When he died, she goes, oh no, he died. Yeah, and she's like crying and stuff. And we talked to them after the show and it's just like, okay, well, it's that type of show that it'll take you right out there. But honestly, it gets better, you know. Yeah. He dies, but it gets better. It did get better. Yeah. You know. So it's like target audience is something we're meant to address as well. Yeah. And we just kind of, as soon as they said target audience, we were like, everyone. It's like everyone, you know. It's everyone who, who you know, is effectively a young adult right through to 70, 80 year olds. Yes, know? anyone who will be part of the health system at any point in their life. And that is literally everyone. Even if you go through life with perfect health, people you know won't. Uh, yeah. 
It's and I mean it's it's a funny show. I mean for God's sake, it's a story about a comedian. It's funny and it goes places that most people don't, and it can do it with honesty because yes, it is as they say in the classics, inspired by a true story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We by, just we based just, on a true story. We just changed it to make it more believable. Yeah, yeah. Because the true story was just a little just bit out there. Too much. It was just too out there, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's... Look, I, I think that's a good place to wind up this little chat. As for those who've always wanted to know what is Code Grey, and I suppose literally what is Code Grey, it's a hospital term. Um, code Red is an emergency. Code Red is fire. Code Red's a fire. They've got to evacuate. Yeah. Um, uh, or... Oh, it's weird, actually. Because they've got to evacuate the patients who are right there when something is burning. Yeah. Um, or the 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 fire the fire service have got to come in and check out the alarm that's going off and why, and they tell the patients to stay exactly where they are, mm. and the patients are going fucking something's on fire. I'd like to leave now. Now they will they will wheel you out if yeah. something's on fire. They will. Don't worry about it. Um, and the first thing they do is stick oxygen masks on you. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going, is that okay if there's a fire? It could be on pure oxygen. And yeah. um, so that's code red. Code yellow is a toxic spill. All right. The code, code yellow ATs peed himself again. Again. Yeah. You know. And it's like, is code black someone dead or is someone... Well, code black is um, somebody has used a weapon or has... A weapon and he's rolling around the hospital. So somebody's got in the hospital with a gun mm. and either shot someone or is threatening or is rolling around the hospital with a gun. Mm. And what everyone's told to do is keep their fucking hands down yeah. um, to turn off the uh, patient alarms, to turn off the lights in the wards. Yeah. Right? Turn everything off. And um, then not to confront the person. And then the cops come and flood the hospital. Yeah. Is and there a Code Blue? Yes, there is. Is that someone flatlining? Or? Um, code Blue is um, someone flatlining. Um, and it's also a... Um, it's, yeah, there's, okay. There's a thing called Metcall. Right. So what happens is the nurses look at a patient... And go, I don't like this. Something's wrong. And they call a met call. Yeah. And doctors come running. That's yeah. So that's basically medical emergency. Right. The yeah. doctors come running, and they check out everything about the patient. Mm. And nine times out of ten, there's something really wrong. Yeah. Right. And the nurses cannot be. Um, cannot be disciplined if nothing happens. Mm. They cannot be disciplined for uh, for a false alarm. Mm. Um, and they are always praised for calling a met call, even if it's a false alarm. They don't, mm. no, no one cares. They like false alarms. Yeah, it keeps them on their toes. You know? Um, usually a met call, though, is something full on, and it's yeah. the nurses save people's lives yeah. By getting this group of doctors who are assigned for met call, mm. at any time of the day or night, mm. they will come running and fix this shit up. Yeah. 
And but, yeah. then there's Code Grey. Code Grey. That's this is where we have to be a little bit honest because we'll say, look, honestly, uh, medical staff are subject to violence from patients and members of the public, and it's always unacceptable and it's always terrible. But code grey is when a patient gets a bit shirty. They get stroppy, and they're threatening um, staff, yeah. or they're starting. They spit on them, or yeah. they they have a swing at them. Yeah. And all of the doctors and nurses in an area come and flood this patient. There's like usually 20 or 30 of them around. <laughs> and uh, the the big boy doctors, the big boy doctors come in and then the nurses try and negotiate, like, you know, de-escalate the patient. Yeah. But then the patient is... Um, gets strapped down, maybe. Sometimes they get strapped yeah. down. Sometimes they get asked to find another hospital. Yeah, so, and we have to be a little bit honest. It's because um, AZ got pushed to the point once or twice in these extreme misadventures where code greys happened. I don't think you ever actually hurt anyone, did I you? I didn't actually hurt anyone. Caused a scene. I did cause a scene. Cause a scene. Not I, cool. I did I did break yeah. a fairly, fairly substantial amount of hospital property so, when yeah. I did Marissa. Code, um, code grey is... Uh, I guess it's the subtext of this 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 little fella going through all this stuff occasionally lost his shit is is it a normal and for, flawed human who under extreme stress just uh, lost it just lost it so that's actually what code gray is when little aidsy loses his little mind for a little second my favorite code though is code brown code brown is when something happens outside the hospital that is so bad that no one is allowed no one who's working there is allowed to leave right and everyone who can is supposed to come in and lockdown um no it's not lockdown but just don't go outside don't go outside and get ready for an influx of patients right and it's bad it's very bad out there. Code brown. Code brown. And you shit your pants. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who thought when you said, my favourite's code brown. That's what they say when I shit myself in the bed. Um, but it's a metaphorical code brown. It's a, yeah. It's, yeah. And it was, I'm sure they were laughing when they named it. Yeah. You know, and it's something like, oh, it's, it's really bad shit. It's something like a horrible terrorist bomb's gone yeah. off. Or a or major accident. A major car pile up. Mm. Or, you know, something like a bridge collapse. Yeah. Um, Because we've had all of that in Melbourne. And, um, you know, helicopters are flying patients to all of the hospitals. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the hospital's got to have as many staff on as possible because they're going to get ambulance after ambulance after ambulance after ambulance with people with horrendous injuries. And they need everybody hands on deck. Um, to to triage, to um, administer. Um, It's the only time nurses are allowed to um, administer morphine without asking doctors' permission. I've talked to people who've done the training for that. It's very specific triage rules in the emergency. So, yeah, that's lucky I wore my brown gown Mm. to work Mm. today. yeah, but um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, code grey is when the um, patient's about 
to commit violence and yeah. is getting really stroppy. Yeah, it needs <clears throat> needs to be calmed the hell down. <clears throat> so that's that's I guess our central theme. So look, I I hope that's uh, uh, answered a few questions because people ask these all the time, uh, and I hope that's got you interested in the idea of us doing this as a web series. And this has mainly been an exercise for us to talk these things through too and get a clearer idea of what we want. So uh, I think that that's a good place to leave it. That's that's our little Code Grey podcast. Yep. And um, we will be back talking about so many things, so many different and varied things over the weeks. I, I, I've got a series on how to pick up chicks, bow with the chow <laughs> Which is also, I don't, people still get that, I think. But that's also from our generation. 70s and 80s porn had these sort of bad soft jazz soundtracks. Oh, yeah, and it was just... When the action started, it was bow, chicka, bow, wow, just like slapping the bass. And I think people still say it, and they don't even know why, because internet porn doesn't even have soundtracks, which is really sad. It is sad. But, yeah, I'm sure you can find 70s and 80s porn on the internet. And just, and just like, the soft jazz soundtracks they had in it was just... It was just, yeah, it was just... Doing the old Italian chef kissing fingers thing for how good the terrible soundtracks were. Yeah, and and the they used to try and make little movies. Yeah, there were plots. There were plots. And, um, you know, and the... And the and the one that was always an amazing trope was the pizza man, right? So there'd be Bing Bong, and the the Pizzas. girl in the um, diaphanous, um, you know, uh, night clothes would open the uh, door, and in he'd come, and she go, "What are you doing?" And he'd go, "Hello, I'm the pizza man," and she'd say, "Oh, come in, and I will give you your money." Thanks, madam. Where do you want the pizza put? Just over there. Do you want extra sausage? Yeah. Look, we were saying goodbye, and now we're talking about porn, and if we start talking about porn... It's hot in here. Why don't you take off your shirt? We won't stop for another hour. So a, a, a completely different talk we'll have will be about porn. I have no doubt whatsoever. Yeah. And also, yeah, I've got this uh, series about how to pick up chicks, bow, chicka, wow, wow. Spoiler alert, it's about being a decent fucking human. Yeah, um, it's really about that. It's really uh, about that. But we, we will be back, uh, and hope you will be here. hope you enjoyed this. And um, we will communicate with you fine people again uh, at a later date. And we'll say bye for now. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>